Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the city of Lagos and beyond renewed by the gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. The Bible reading for today is taken from the book of Ezra, chapter 10, verses 1 to 17. When I'm done with the reading, I would say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. While Ezra was praying and confessing, while Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shachaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam said to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice. You are right. We must do as you say. But there are many people here and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials ask for the whole assembly then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time 
along with the elders and judges of each town, until the first anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Yaziah, son of Tigva, supported by Meshulam and Shebatiah the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. This is the word of the Lord. I need to bow down and just ask God. I don't know if you have an expectation, something that you want God to do for you this morning. I want to just ask God to meet you right where you are. To send you a word in season, to send you a word that will radically alter your direction. Pray that God will give you something. There's no one in scripture who met with God who never, who went back the same. Ask that God will give you something, that there will be a tangible evidence of your having been in God's presence this morning. I want you to open your mouth, people of God, and pray. Ask that the Lord will cause a turnaround in your life, in your circumstances, in your situation, in your marriage, in your finances, in your relationships this morning by virtue of his word. Lord, we are grateful for the privilege to be able to appear before you again. He says they come before God, each one of them in Zion. They go from strength to strength precisely because they have seen God face to face. Lord, we ask that you energize us supernaturally this morning. Lord, let there be a change. Let there be a turnaround. Let there be a tangible thing, Lord, that we encounter by virtue of being in your presence this morning. Lord, we are grateful for the privilege that the words spoken by mere mortals, heard by mere mortals, can be the word of God to his people by the Spirit of God. You say that so shall my word be. It will not return back to me void, but will accomplish the thing for which I sent it. Lord, let your word go forth this morning and let it accomplish what you have sent it to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, friends, City Church. Um, if you're just worshiping with us for the first time as well, we're happy to have you. If you're coming back after a while, we're happy to have you. Um, you probably heard that announcement, or maybe you didn't, you didn't hear it. Um, Pastor Femi announced that we are coming to the end of the Ezra series. Yeah, I, I just gave you guys another chance, another chance, right? And you see it. So we've been in this book of Ezra over 13 Sundays. Really, it's been like two to three months. I know it reminds me of Tinsel, right? Like when... When is it going to end? Like, maybe you probably felt like that. When is it going to end? Tinsel keeps having new, new series every time. Like, God, it's been going on for like, what, 13 years, 14 years now. And maybe that's how you feel about Ezra. Well, today we come to the end. And what we've been seeing through the book of Ezra is really how God has been working through his people and in his people for his namesake. 
It started by God saying several years earlier in the book of Jeremiah and through many prophets that, guys, be careful. Your time is almost, your cup is almost getting full. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from the hardness of your heart and all the evil things that you have been doing. Because if you do not turn away, I'm going to expel you. I'm going to send you out of the land. But as you know now, human beings, we know they hear what. And so they didn't listen to God. And so God fulfilled his promise of judgment. And so they were expelled from his kingdom. But God also gave them a prophetic word of assurance that said, I'm going to send you up. I'm not going to cast you out from my presence. I'm going to invite you back in. And already I can tell you, friends, that is good news. Because no matter where you are at this morning, God hasn't given up on you. If you're still alive and breathing, God hasn't given up on you. And so God welcomes his people back. He causes there to be a political scheme, a, 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 a legislation that was made by the king. And Tommy told us in the first sermon that caused the people of God to return back to their homeland. And we saw that God restored them back to their homeland. They came back, and many people came back. God provided for them to reconstruct the building of the temple so that they could ultimately be with him, be his people. And in chapter 7, we're introduced to this person called Ezra, who would go back home to build on many of the things that had been done by his forefathers, and so that the gracious turnaround that God intended could ultimately be worked out in the lives of his people. And so we call this series a gracious turnaround, because that word sort of captures not just what is written in the book of Ezra, but it also captures the sentiment that things are not quite where they were meant to be. It, it, to, to turn something around means that there is an ideal that ought to obtain, and somehow we're not working in line with that, and so we're working to bring things back to where they're supposed to be. And already I can tell you that what you think the problem is determines the kind of solution that you will prescribe. What you think the problem is with anything at all determines the kind of solution you prescribe. If you think the problem is merely economic, the answer is to have a better economic system. If you think the problem is political, then your favorite political candidate is the one that has the answer. And so if that person doesn't come into power authority, then there is no hope for our nation. If you think the answer is educational, then the answer is for there to be more education, for people to read and expand their minds and better themselves so that they can become the kind of people they are meant to be, so that they can experience the turnaround. But you see, friends, if history has told us anything, it is that our problem is both more fundamental and deeper than we actually thought. Because if you know the course of history, you know that there was a man called Karl Marx who was both a political and economic theorist. And he didn't like the crass capitalism of his day. And so he proposed a better system, or at least what he thought was a better economic system, that ultimately led to what was communism and adopted in many countries in Eastern Europe and in parts of Asia and even some parts of Africa. And the sad reality was that many of the things he was writing against was perpetrated by the system that he helped develop. It wasn't an economic system. It wasn't an economic problem. If you know the course of history, you've heard the name Robert Mugabe, who was a man along the likes of Nelson Mandela, Kenneth Kaunda, and many other people who fought for the freedom of Zimbabwe in the 60s and 70s. And so a lot of people thought that, oh, the problem we had was politics. The white people in Zimbabwe didn't want us to really enjoy ourselves. So let's bring in this black person who can work out a better political system, and that is how we encounter political freedom. But actually, Robert Mugabe ended up being the person who even created not just the problems he was <laughs> fighting against, but even worse problems for his people. 
And I'm sure we all know that education is not the answer because many of us know many educated thieves. Just in case you didn't know, Hush Puppy went to school. And you might say, oh, that's Nigerian school. Well, have you heard the name Benny Madoff? The person who instigated the worst, largest Ponzi scheme in world history to the tune of $64 billion. He schooled in the abroad. <laughs> what you think the problem is determines the kind of solution you prescribe. And Ezra goes back home knowing this. He doesn't say, oh, guys, we need to change our judicial system. No, we need to ask for more taxes. We need to make sure that things are equitable for people. No, Ezra goes home realizing that what is actually broken is not the system. It is the people themselves. And I'm here to announce to you, friends, this morning, just in case you didn't know, that what is wrong with the world, what is broken around us, is not primarily outside of us, it is inside of us. We are the problem. And so if we are going to express ultimately that gracious turnaround, and maybe you've been wondering, like, ah, I missed this entire series. Guess what? Today's sermon packs everything together because if we are going to entire, en encounter the entirety of the gracious turnaround that God intends for us, we have to be fixed. Our relationship with God has to be fixed. And so there has to be a vertical fixing. Our relationship with others has to be fixed. And so it has to be fixed horizontally. But there also has to be an eternal fixing. And so we're going to look at those three things this morning very briefly. Fixing the vertical, fixing the horizontal, and fixing the eternal. Fixing the vertical, fixing the horizontal, and fixing the, vertical, the eternal. I'm going to spend a larger point, portion of my time talking about the first one, fixing the vertical. And so we're in chapter 10, and really chapter 10 is the second half of a two-part chapter that has been talking about the same thing or describing the same thing. And so what we saw last week, if you weren't with us, was that Ezra comes back home and he knows that the relationship of God's people is out of sorts. And the way he knows it is not because people are cheating people. People are asking for high rent or all these other crazy things that we complain about. It is actually through the state of their marriages and their marital choices. So Ezra is weeping. We saw in chapter 9, he's complaining. He, like we said, he was probably, you could have thought that he was being too dramatic. But actually, Ezra shows us that the right response to the brokenness around us is to feel the emotions of God and be so in tune with the emotions of God that it makes us fall down on our face and weep. And so now in chapter 10, verse 1, Ezra continues this thing. He's He's weeping, he's confessing, he's praying, but now he's been joined by other people and they're all confessing and weeping and crying out and praying. And they say two things that I think are really important for us as they confess their sin. Verse 2 says that when they're expressing what they have done, they don't just say, oh, this is a bad decision we've made. This is a bad thing that we have done. But actually what they say, first of all, is that we have been unfaithful to God. This isn't just we have done something wrong or we haven't taken the best decision for our lives or we haven't done the most logical thing. This is actually we have been unfaithful to God. But then in verse 3 and 4, they say something, the positive, but let me say what the negative of it is. 
In working out their unfaithfulness and how they intend to turn back from their unfaithfulness, they say that we should act in accordance with the commands of God. In other words, what had happened before was that they weren't acting in accordance with the commands of God. And so we see those two things there, unfaithfulness to God, but also acting against the commands of God. And those two things are very important for us, friends. Because if we are going to express a vertical fixing that leads to the gracious turnaround that we are looking for and seeking in our lives, we have to recognize that sin is both an affront against the person of God and of faithfulness to God, but is also breaking his commands. Sin is an affront against the person of God and also breaking his commands. Because what happens is when we don't recognize that sin is a breaking of God's commands and we just feel like, oh, I'm... Is, is against the person of God. What usually happens is that we construct a God in our own image. It's like you are walking in your house, walking past, and then you sort of step on the pet. And, and the pet, whether a dog or a cat, yelps out, meow. And like, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And that's how many of us actually think about God. Is this domesticated animal that doesn't really have any moral requirements. And sometimes I do things that they don't like because, well, they're just weird. So I'm, I'm sorry. You construct a God in your image. Or maybe some of us, and this is the one that is more common, we don't think about the person of God. We think of it as just an affront against the commands of God. And so we think the solution ultimately is to just act better, be better, do better, think better. We think it ultimately comes down to something that we have to do. Showing that our hearts were actually legalists. We think the way the vertical, the vertical problem can be fixed is just by striving harder. But these people say, no, no, no. It is both against the person of God and also against the commands of God. Our God is not a domesticated pet, but he's also not an impersonal being that we relate with by just actions. And so they recognize that and they confess. They confess, they confess, and by confessing, I mean they say what God says. And so confessing ultimately it is that you, you are subscribing to God's judgment, God's, God's, God's determination of the fact. And you're saying, God, I say I am seeing the exact same thing you're seeing and saying about this particular circumstance. They confess. But they don't just stop there, they repent. In verses 2, 3, and 4, they say, no, we, we've gone against God's commands. We've desecrated the person of God. And so now we have to come back to faithfulness to God, but we also have to act in step with the commands of God. And if you're wondering what repentance is, friends, repentance means to alter the direction of our desires and longings so that they can be in alignment with God's. Repentance means to alter the direction of our desires, our longings, and our actions so that they can be in alignment with God. Ultimately, repentance is a change of direction. We're heading a certain way, 180 kilometers per hour, speeding in your Ferrari, and the answer is not to slow down and actually enter the pothole carefully. No, the answer is a radical change of direction. Repentance is to go the other way in alignment with what God requires. And can I just speak with you, if you're not a Christian here this morning, 
Can I say to you that ultimately God's call to you this morning is to repent. He's, this is a gracious invitation that he's making to you this morning. The primary way you can experience a turnaround in your life is not by thinking better, doing better, being better, acting right, and being the kind of person that people like. It is ultimately by changing course and changing direction. And chapter 10, verses 7 to 8, says these words. When the proclamation has been made calling for the people's repentance, it says there's a proclamation made just like the one I'm making now and declaring the gospel. There's a proclamation that is going forth. But it says in verse 8, every person who doesn't heed these words will forfeit their property and they will be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. And guess what, friends? If you're not a Christian here this morning, can I just tell you that no matter how much you're enjoying now in this present life, you're like a chicken that is being fed in preparation for Christmas to be killed. You will forfeit your property. You'll be expelled from the presence of God. Pastor Femi talked about how there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. And ultimately, as a non-Christian, where you don't repent and follow Christ and embrace the good news of Jesus, God will ultimately say to you, your will be done, be expelled from my presence. I invite you to come to Jesus. But can I also talk to those of us who are believers, those of us who name the name of Jesus? And you might be saying, yeah, well, Mano, I actually repented when I became a Christian. I, I, I've, I've done that, so I'm good. But don't you see, repentance isn't just how we come into the Christian life. Repentance is how we grow and continue in the Christian life. Martin Luther, the German reformer, says these words. He says, when our Lord said, repent, he intended the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, repentance isn't just how we come in. Repentance is how we grow and continue. Because by believing in the gospel, we see God for who he is. We see ourselves for who we are. And as Jesus is walking upon us day by day and performing his surgery in our hearts, he's awakening our affections. And we are saying like, no, this, this remaining sin, this pride, this greed, this loss, this, all these affections that I'm having, they are out of sorts with what God demands. And we are repenting and following his counsel for our lives each and every day. When our Lord said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. There are two concepts to sort of just help us understand this better that you may have heard us talk about if you've been coming to City Church for quite a while now. It's shrinking the cross and let me call the other one magnifying the cross. And so shrinking the cross basically means that you are the kind of person who comes, you, you're converted, you've repented at that point in time. But because the, you're not growing in awareness of God's holiness, you can't grow in awareness of your sinfulness. And so the cross of Jesus Christ just looks pretty much the same all through your life. No growth. Jesus isn't, he's just there. He's not great. He's just, yeah, he saved me and, you know, that's pretty much it. And what happens is that you are shrinking the cross. But actually, what this chart should be showing is that by shrinking the cross, what is, what is happening is you are you're actually magnifying yourself. You are growing in awareness of yourself. You are growing in loving yourself more and more. You are working against the counsel of God. But what should be happening is something that is showing in this other chart 
the cross should actually be getting bigger and bigger in our lives. And how does that happen? It is by an increasing awareness of God's holiness that leads to an increasing awareness of the sin in our lives. And we see more and more our need for Jesus. And we're seeing his cross more and more precious, more and more desirable. And because we're seeing that, we're seeing the sin in our lives and we're running away from it. And we say, God, kill this thing. God, kill this thing. I repent of these ways that I'm breaking your commands and I'm following you. When the Lord said, repent, he will that the entire lives of believers be one of repentance. And this is why, can I just say to you in City Church, we confess our sin publicly every Sunday when we gather together. It is because the, per- the person who is leading the worship service starts with a call being made for us to come into the presence of God. And as, and as we are singing and proclaiming how great God is, we see how great we aren't and all the ways we have failed God. And the only response is to say, God, I've messed up. Have mercy upon me. And we repent. But maybe you're asking, okay, I get that, but what should repentance actually look like? If this vertical relationship has to be fixed so that I can experience the gracious turnaround. What should repentance actually look like in my life? Let me just briefly show us something from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. And what's happened here in that passage is that Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians before, and he had provoked a certain kind of reaction in them. And Paul is thanking God for the kind of reaction he provoked in them because it led ultimately to their salvation. Hear what it says. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And then it says in verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved to yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Do you see? precisely because they repented and precisely because they mourned over their sin in a godly way that provoked sorrow in their hearts, it led to salvation. We repent by actually asking God to awaken a godly sorrow in our hearts that helps us to hate sin. Let me just briefly walk us through what this sort of looks like. Worldly sorrow is basically what you can call remorse. And so you feel bad for the things that you have done. You feel bad. Like, unless you're a psychopath, everybody feels bad when they do bad things, right? But just feeling bad isn't enough. Godly sorrow actually takes it a notch higher and shows us how, as Christians, we should be responding. So take, for instance, who is responsible for this thing that has ultimately been done? Who is the, who is, who, on whose hand does responsibility lie? Remorse says something like this. Eh, it's really because you are the one that has the problem. You are the one with you know, low self-esteem and you didn't really understand the joke I was trying to crack. So, but no, but of course, as a very cultured person, you don't say it that way. You say it in a very dignified way. So you say, I am sorry that you feel bad. How many of us have given that kind of apology before? I hate, I hate that apology. I am sorry you feel bad. In other words, it's on you. It's on you. But actually, repentance says, I am sorry I acted wrongly. What led to the harm done? 
worldly sorrow ultimately says is the other person that is responsible for it or something outside of me that is responsible for it. So I was into traffic and then I was standing at the, I came down from the bus and then I stood at the junction trying to hail another bus or tried to cross the road and then somebody drove past and then splashed water on my white dress and so I was very angry and so they made me do it. But repentance says, no, no, no. I chose to act wrongly. Let me skip, change, and talk about subject. So who, who is the subject of the harm done? And this is really, really important. And you see this in virtually every story in the Bible where there's some action of, of sin being done or somebody who is repenting. You see this exemplified in the life of David. Who is the subject of this thing done? Worldly sorrow or remorse says, this action is ultimately against the person I offended. So it's always just this person right in front of me. But godly sorrow, actually, you see that in the life of David, both in Psalm 51 when he's praying, but also how he responds to um, Nathan when he comes and tells him God's word in, in 2 Samuel. He says, this thing, he has raped Bathsheba, he has killed Uriah. He says this thing is ultimately against God. Worldly sorrow, godly sorrow ultimately knows that the action that we have committed is ultimately against God. Let me jump to the last one. So what needs to be done to make things better? You see, worldly sorrow ultimately says, how can I make this person like me better? That's where it stops. What can I do so that they'll just stop being angry? I spoke to my spouse the wrong way. I spoke to my friend the wrong way. Eh, I don't like the bad feeling that we're having. What can I do to just make it go away? But godly sorrow says, how can I continue to demonstrate to this person I am truly sorry for the thing that I have done? Worldly sorrow is concerned with just this one action I need to do and just let's get things back to normal. Godly sorrow says, how can I turn around actually from this thing? Do you see, friends? Worldly sorrow is preoccupied with myself, the person in front of me, and what they think about me. Godly sorrow is preoccupied with God and what he thinks about me. When the Lord said, repent, he willed that the entire lives of believers be one of repentance. You can take the chart down. You see, when God asks us to repent, it's not because God likes us feeling bad. Or it's not because God loves us to be navel gazers who just spend and keep looking internally. It's actually because he wants to make us useful for his own purposes. I don't know if you've ever seen a video of a horse. When horses are born, in fact, that should tell you something that speed and how fast something can go is often measured in horsepower. Horses are wild, they are strong, they can kick things down. But a horse is ultimately useful when it is broken and bended to the will of the person who wants to ride on it. And what God is trying to do with our lives when he calls us to himself to repent is to ultimately make us the kind of people he can use. When the Lord said, repent, he willed that the entire lives of believers be one of repentance. And so we must fix the vertical. If we are to experience this gracious turnaround, 
But we must also fix the horizontal. Because you see, every human brokenness, and this is not an overstatement, this is what we see in the Bible. Every human brokenness or human suffering that we experience at a horizontal level with other people, whether it be our marriage relationships or at work or in our families, all of those things ultimately come from a place of deep-rooted theological or Godward issues, brokenness. Every human brokenness that we experience on a horizontal level ultimately comes from a deeper Godward issue or brokenness that we're experiencing. And we see this in three ways. Because these people have been broken by God or broken in their relationship with God in this passage, we see how it expresses itself at the horizontal level in this passage. First, we see broken leadership. And you see that in chapter 9, verse 2. We see that a little bit more in chapter 10, but very clearly in chapter 9, verse 2. And so if you remember, what I was saying at the beginning was that these people had sinned against God by intermarrying and marrying the people who, were, who God had told them not to marry. And chapter 9, verse 2 says this at the end. After he had said all these things that he had done wrong, he says, the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. In other words, the people are where they are right now. We are suffering this way where we are right now. We're expressing this brokenness in our human relationship because the people who are meant to be leading us were the ones who were leading us astray. Can I tell you, friends, that when it comes to the brokenness we're experiencing in the church of God in Nigeria, in the world, the brokenness that you are experiencing perhaps in your home, the brokenness you are experiencing at work, it ultimately comes down to this, that people who, are, who have been saddled with the responsibility of leadership, rather than use their responsibility of leadership to lead the people where they are meant to go, they have led the people astray. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 16 says this very, carefully, very clearly. It says that woe to the land whose king is a child and whose princes wake up and just eat and eat and eat. Broken leadership. And maybe you're thinking, ah, yeah, that's probably about politics. Like Nigeria is where Nigeria is today because we have broken leaders. Can I just say that that's not just political, that's also in our workplaces as well. Some of you have probably heard this statement. People don't quit bad jobs, they quit bad bosses. I was somewhere with a couple of people last week and we're talking about different work issues and somebody who had changed her jobs a few times said that largely all the places that she had left, she left because of bad bosses. People who were managing her well, who were stewarding their responsibility well, who were leading the way they were meant to lead. Broken relationships because of bad leadership. But we see the second way that this brokenness horizontally is, is shown in this passage, and I won't spend too much time on it because we talked about it last week, and, and I encourage you to please go back and listen to it if you haven't. Not because I preached it, but because... And we see the brokenness in their marital choices or in their current marriage states. Because they had prioritized love. They had prioritized how they felt. They had prioritized, you know, let me just do this thing because everybody is doing it. Now they're experiencing brokenness in their relationships. 
But lastly, you see there's a broken community. There's a broken community because chapter 10 verse 1 tells us precisely because they had married outside of what God had told them, now they can't pursue a common goal. This person loves another God. This person loves the true God. And so all of us can't cohabit together. We can't live the lives that God has called us to. So we can't express the refreshing and the gracious turnaround that God ultimately determines. There was broken leadership. There was broken marriages. There was broken community. But the good news is that God fixes that. And if if you're in any of those situations this morning, God can fix that for you. How does it get fixed? How does the broken leadership get fixed? We see it get fixed in chapter 10, verse 5, when the leaders actually return to the path that God had called them to return to. When the leaders actually take responsibility and begin to do the things that they had been called to. And so verse 5 says that Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested, and they took the oath. The people who led the way in the breaking of God's command became the people who led the way in the fulfillment of God's commands. Do you see, friends? That in the spaces and places where God has put us, if we are going to experience God's gracious turnaround, whether as leaders or people who have responsibility, we have to be people who lead people actually into what God has called them to, not what we want. And maybe some of you are saying, how can I do that? I think one way you can do that is by casting a compelling vision particularly for those of us who are bosses and people, those of us who are responsible for leading other people or leading a team or managing a team, cast a compelling vision. You see, what happened was when Ezra came back, he said, no, guys, he was so broken by what was happening around them, what was happening to the people of God, because he knew that this isn't where the people of God were meant to be. They were supposed to be somewhere else. They were supposed to be expressing a different kind of life. And so what Ezra ultimately did was that he casted a vision of who they could be and what God had called them to be. Cast a compelling vision. Don't just let the goals of your team, don't just let the goals of your company be about how we can line our pockets and go back home with a lot of shares at the end of the day. Because you might just end up being like Benny Madoff. Let it be about something far bigger, far greater, far grander than just we are paying you. Cast the compelling vision. Do the people working under you actually know what your company is about? Do they know what your company is about in theory, but actually what you are doing is sort of different? Cast a compelling vision. Cast a compelling vision that commits to larger interests than just your own interests. What does your company existing in Lagos, in existing in Nigeria, what are the solutions that you are trying to provide? What are they doing to actually renew and change the society that God has called you to? Another way we can do that is by looking for people who are actually excelling in our workplaces and platforming them. You see Ezra do this in this passage. Have you wondered that the story of Ezra is actually about Ezra, and yet as we read through the book of Ezra, we we keep seeing different people feature in the story of Ezra. 
We see the priests and the Levites. In this passage, he mentions Jehoanan. He mentions somebody else. And it's almost as though Ezra is saying that this work of reform, this work of gracious turnaround that I want to see my people experience is something that is bigger than just me. And so I'm going to get other people that are doing this thing well, and I'm going to platform them, and I'm going to elevate them, and I'm going to give them public credit for it. Don't be the kind of boss that... When things are going south, you actually say, it's this useless guy that designed this slide this morning. And then when everything is going well, you take the credit for it. Empower the people under you. That's how the broken leadership is fixed. So how are the broken marriages fixed? Well, the broken marriages are fixed in chapter 10, verse 3. When the people of God pursue marriage relationships within the community of God. Again, I won't spend much time on this because we spoke about it last week. But I love what somebody said. He said, charisma and chemistry cannot replace spiritual communion. Charisma and chemistry. Oh, I'm looking for the person that when we walk down the aisle and we, and we have a red carpet event, they can put them in ovation or Bella Ninja. I want somebody that, you know, um, is tall enough so that I can put my head on their chest, you know. A lot of us are laughing, but the truth is that deep down, that's ultimately what we are looking for. Somebody that makes us look good. But actually, Ezra shows us that if we are going to experience that horizontal fixing in our marriage relationships, we have to pursue marriage relationships within the covenant community of God. If you are unmarried, look for somebody who is in the community of God, who loves Jesus far more than you. Because when the face and the muscles and all the ideals that you have have failed, ultimately what's going to hold you accountable and lead you down the path that God has called you to is that this person loves Jesus and is accountable to Jesus. If you are married, pursue God with your spouse. I can tell you, friends, that I've experienced spiritual growth in my life, but I've experienced spiritual growth in my life not just because, and even though this is important, I'm within the community of the people of God in City Church, not just because I'm privileged to serve under somebody who loves God and knows God and, and wants all of us who work with him to love and serve God, Pastor Femi, but also because I'm married to my wife. Precisely because I see her praying and doing all these different things and, and reaching out to people, it challenges me like, hey, guy, what are you doing? Pursue God with your spouse. The broken leadership is fixed when the leaders walk the path that God has called them to. The broken marriages are fixed when they pursue relationships within the covenant community of the people of God. Marriage relationships within the covenant community of the people of God. But the broken community is fixed when the people within the community of God pursue a covenant relationship with one another. There's a strange bit of information that we are given in verse 6 of chapter 10. I don't know if you've seen it or you heard it when we're reading is that Ezra, remember verse 1, Ezra is crying by himself, he's weeping, he's mourning, people join him. And I think Ezra is probably an introvert like me, and he gets to one point, he's probably like, 
this is too much. Oh my God, this is too much. I can't take it anymore. He stands up and he goes to somebody's house, Jehovah's house, and he goes to continue weeping and mourning there. Who does that? An introvert. Ezra probably feels like, this is too much. I can't take it anymore. But rather than abandon ship and leave the people of God, he goes and finds somewhere else within the people of God where he can find sanctuary. Friends, look for, pursue relationships within the people of God. On one level, this means that we cannot just be Sunday, Sunday Christians. I know Lagos is hard. I know traffic is a thing. I know. But the truth is, if you had somewhere to go in Oshodi, where they will always be giving you 10 million naira every Wednesday, and living in Aja, you find a way to make it. It is because we don't think about the people of God as truly being important that we don't see the necessity of gathering with the people of God and pursuing relationships within the people of God. Ezra says if we are going to experience that fixing horizontally, we have to pursue relationship with the people of God. On one level, this means that some of us need to open our homes more. Be like Jehoanan. Don't say, Ezra, you're weird. Go back to where you're coming from. Why do you want to come and be crying in my house? <laughs> That's weird, man. Get out. Jonah opened his house. There's a family in this church that I, 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 I just gave them a new name this morning. I said, CCL Family House. Because it just reminds me of, you know, NCCL Family House, where everybody could stay. And this person just found out that some people have, they have plumbing issues. They don't have water. And it was like, oh, you can come and stay in my house. I'm like, guy. But actually, it is because of this, because we are together as the people of God. It means sharing our resources with the people of God. There was a sister who has had a very difficult couple of weeks, and she, she was in an accident. Thankfully, God spared her life, and her car was, was hit, and so she, the car had to be with the mechanic. But somebody else, something else came up in her family that also, you know, demanded a lot of time and demanded that she be moving from place to place. And somebody else in the church heard, and the person was like, oh, you can take my car for that for the day. Why? Because we belong to the same community of the people of God. Let's share our resources with the people that God has called us to. And let's share our resources with the people that God has called us to who cannot pay us back. You see, there's a very Lagos way of rubbing my back so that I can rub your back. I'll help you now so that when is my birthday, you can buy something for me. Or you can introduce me to somebody. You see, and we're always doing it because we've gamed the system. So if I do this and if I say this, I know this person knows this person so they can help me, give, grant me this access. But actually, we ultimately show that we belong to the people of God and love the people of God and pursue relationship with the people of God by not seeking anything in return. Getting something in return would just be by the way. We do it because we love them. And we see that this is how God fixes the horizontal brokenness in this book. The vertical brokenness is fixed first. The horizontal brokenness is fixed by the leaders doing what they are meant to do, by people marrying within the community of the people of God, but also pursuing relationship within the community of God. 
And maybe just one more thing on that. Some of you might be saying, Emmanuel, I've been hurt. There have been crazy people in church. Like, duh. That's why it's called church. It's like going to a hospital and you say there are people who are on life support. Like, hello. That's what the hospital is for. A church is not a museum. A church is a hospital for broken people. And just some of us are in intensive care units. Some of us are people in the wards. Some of us are people on life support. Some of us are people who are outpatients. We've received treatment enough to go out, but we need to keep coming back. But you see, what all of us, none of us is a perfect specimen. All of us are works in progress, and Jesus is working upon us. And so we are going to have friction. We are going to, we are going to have issues. Somebody's politics is going to drive you nuts. It's going to even make you question whether they're a Christian. But guess what? That is why we are the people of God. Because we are not bound together by a primarily common interest, politically, educationally, socially, or any other lee. We are bound together because we belong to God. Have you ever seen where two knives are trying to, where one knife is trying to sharpen another knife? It gets rough. But it's ultimately in that contact that the sharpening comes. And that's what God does with the community of the people of God. Fixing the vertical, fixing the horizontal, but also, lastly, fixing the eternal. Friends, I've said this a number of times, but it's the truth that our problem primarily is vertical. When we are broken with God vertically, that spills out in our horizontal relationships with other people. But yeah, we can adjust, we can do better, we can think better, we can relate with people better, we can ask God for more grace. But the truth is that if you are humble and you know yourself, you've been watching yourself for any length of time now, you know that sometimes you don't always get it right. You don't always get it right. You respond in anger. You have to send sorry messages to people that you work with. You have to explain, I, I didn't mean it that way. You, you don't always get it right. And what's to say that somehow God is not going to run out of grace and patience with you one day and say, I've been working on this Emmanuel guy for these 30 plus years, and this guy isn't making progress. He keeps doing the same thing again. Let me just right-click the button on my eternal computer and throw him into the eternal recycle bin. Done and dusted. Never to relate with again. What's to say God won't do that? You see, our vertical brokenness and our horizontal brokenness ultimately shows that there is an eternal brokenness. That there's something deep down wrong with us that only God can fix. And in this passage, the people recognize that. The people recognize that it, it isn't just a case of marrying better or the leaders doing better or, or forming together as the people of God. It isn't just a case of weeping and repenting. There has to be something else that is done for us. There has to be something else that is done for us by somebody other than us. And in verse 13 and 14, we see them say that. They say, oh, this thing has been really bad. We've, we've, we've gone a long or wrong way. We've done different things. And, 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 and there are lots of people here. We, we, we've, we've messed up. 
And then this weird bit about the rainy season. I'm like, welcome to Lagos. Everybody, it rains small. It's like, ah, it rains. There's probably a flood somewhere. I'm not coming to church. But let's leave that. They put that bit about rainy season. They mourn. And then they say, let our officials act for the whole assembly. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Let our officials act for the whole assembly until the fierce anger of our God is turned away from us. They recognized that they needed somebody or people who were like them who could recognize and stand and understand what they had gone through and the sins that they had committed, but also somebody who could interface for them before God. They needed a substitute, but they also needed an advocate. And can I just tell you, friends, that ultimately that is what we need. We need a substitute. We need an advocate. And the Bible tells us that this substitute and advocate that we need is somebody who can identify with us, but also somebody who is not like us so that he can plead our case before God. That person is Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, this is what he says. He says, if anybody does sin. Hello? Anyone here? If anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Oh, but that isn't the only piece of good news. He says he's also a substitute. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for us only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, Jesus is the perfect person who fully understands what we have gone through because he's human like, he was human like us, but he's also the perfect substitute and advocate because he's unlike us. He never sin. He never walked away from his father. And so he can plead our case before God and he can also represent us to God. That's how our eternal brokenness is fixed, friends. By trusting in, embracing, believing in the one who has been sacrificed for us eternally. And so we can say these words in Verse 2 of chapter 10, so great news for anyone who feels down and dejected and hopeless this morning. This is what the people of God say. We have done all these crazy things, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. We have done all these bad things, and maybe some of you are familiar with it. You, you have sinned against God. You have messed up vertically, horizontally. You have messed up even in some of the ways I haven't described, but the good news is there is still hope for you this morning. There is an advocate and a substitute who has pleaded and who can plead your case before God so that you can express the hope of forgiveness and reconciliation that he offers you this morning. There is still hope for you. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast, and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City